Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, 1 Kings chapter 8 continued. Well, as we opened uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 last time, we witnessed a kind of turning of a cosmic page in redemption history, and thus in Israel's history. And this is because Israel is the context through which God chose to bring about redemption on earth. The temple was completed was about to be consecrated into service and although it would be a few more years before Solomon's personal palace would be completed, it was under construction. Alfred Edersham, that that brilliant and insightful 19th century Jewish believer whose thoughts and writings so heavily influence much of today's so-called Jewish roots movement, makes the observation that the two dwelling places, the one for God and the one for the king, the temple and the palace, constructed on the temple mount, were far from ordinary. The temple and the palace together had extraordinary symbolism that not only showed an organic connection between the two, but also the new reality of their very existence marked the end of the time of Israel being in an unsettled condition. Until now, whatever passed for priestly services over the past three or four hundred years was performed in the remnants of a tent called the Mishkan in Hebrew. And we know of this place as the Wilderness Tabernacle. Now it was originally designated and designed to be a mobile sanctuary for Yehovah as Israel wandered and sought not only a permanent place of rest for the Hebrew people but a permanent place where God would choose to set his holy name over forever. And that place turned out to be Yerushalayim and the land of Canaan and the tribal territory of Judah. The combination of land and sanctuary is what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. Now God also demonstrated that he would govern and administer justice over his earthly kingdom by means of an earthly king. And at the beginning of the book of Judges, I made the claim that despite the nearly universal teaching within the church that God did not want his people to have a king, that God was to be acknowledged as Israel's only sovereign, that in fact that's a mistaken belief. The Holy Scriptures make it crystal clear that part of the purpose of the period of the Shoftim, the judges, was so Israel would finally grasp they couldn't function as intended without a king. The issue was never king or no king. The issue was what kind of king Israel was to have and who would appoint him. 
Thus we see in the model and the pattern of the theocracy that was now Israel under King Shlomo that the anointed earthly king over God's kingdom was not to be a monarch in the typical Middle Eastern or Oriental or even later European sense of it. That is, the earthly king over Israel was not to be seen as an autonomous dictatorial authority figure who would claim to be a kind of vice king with the God of Israel being the higher king. But rather, Israel's king was to be God's servant. Set over Israel merely to carry out God's will. And God's will was that his covenants for redemption of humanity his covenants with Israel which were these immutable documents that set out all the terms and conditions for the redemption of humanity using Israel as his earthly instrument these were to be carefully guarded carried out by Israel's king at God's direction and this is why the construction of Solomon's palace immediately adjacent to the temple was necessary in order to illustrate this special arrangement and connectedness between God and the King of Israel. Now in our last meeting we also discussed the timing of the dedication of Solomon's temple and we noticed two things. First, there was a very practical reason for the ceremony to happen in the seventh month of the religious calendar year. It was that on the tenth day of that month, Yom Kippur occurred. And on this auspicious day alone could anyone ever enter into the Holy of Holies. And the only authorized person to do that was the high priest. Since the Holy of Holies and therefore the temple only became operable when the Ark of the Covenant was in it, it was necessary to wait until Yom Kippur so that the Ark could be placed into that innermost chamber of the Hekal, the temple. The second thing we noticed was that five days following Yom Kippur was the first day of the seven day, technically the eight day, Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkot. And this feast also played a vital role in the temple dedication process. Now last time we read the entire chapter. This lesson we're going to reread portions of it in bite-sized chunks. Okay, so open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to start and we're going to read verses 1 through uh, 21. Page 377 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Then Shlomo assembled all the leaders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the paternal clans of the people of Israel to King Shlomo in Yerushalayim to bring the Ark for the Covenant of Adonai out of the city of David, also known as Zion. All the men of Israel assembled before King Shlomo at the festival in the month of Etanim, the seventh month. 
and all the leaders of Israel came. And the Kohanim took the ark and brought up the ark from Adonai, the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils that were in the tent. These are what the Kohanim and the Levites brought up. And King Shlomo and the whole community of Israel assembled in his presence. And they were with him in front of the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen in numbers beyond counting or recording. The Kohanim brought the ark for the covenant of Adonai to its place inside the sanctuary of the house, to the especially holy place under the wings of the Karuvim, the cherubim. For the Karuvim spread out their wings over the, place, over, over the place for the ark, covering the ark and its poles from above. The poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when Adonai made the covenant with the people of Israel at the time of their leaving the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Adonai so that because of the cloud, the priests couldn't stand up to perform their service because the glory of God filled the house of Adonai. And Shlomo said, Adonai said he would live in thick darkness, but I have built you a magnificent house, a place where you can live forever. And then the king turned around, and he blessed the whole community of Israel. The whole community of Israel stood as he said, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, who spoke to my father David with his mouth and fulfilled his promise with his hand. He said, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city from any of the tribes of Israel in which to build a house so that my name might be there. But I did choose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of Adonai, the God of Israel. But Adonai said to David my father, although it was in your heart to build a house for my name and you did well that it was in your heart, nevertheless you will not build the house. Rather, you will father a son, and it will be he who will build the house for my name. Now Adonai has fulfilled this spoken word of his, for I have succeeded my father and sit on the throne of Israel as Adonai promised, and I have built the house for the name of Adonai, the God of Israel, and there I have made a place for the ark containing the covenant of Adonai, which he made with our ancestors when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Well, in this chapter, we're going to encounter some of the most profound God principles concentrated into a single place that rivals any in the Bible. And some of these God principles are of the kind that defies adequate human explanation by means of mere words. And yet, when we take the time to look at them closely, we're left slack-jawed in awe and wonder. So we're going to take our time, we're going to extract as much as we can from these passages, so great is their value. Now verse 1 explains just who was invited to Jerusalem for the festivities. It's best if we look at the Hebrew words as they're translated somewhat differently by the various English Bible versions. It says that the Zaken, the Rosh, and the Nasi were all invited. 
Zaken literally means old, and it means old ones, or as we say today, elders. These were the people's representatives, usually the senior citizens of Israel, who were not hereditary tribal leaders or aristocrats necessarily. And since Rosh means head, this category is referring to the heads of the families and the clans of Israel. And finally, the Nasi are the twelve tribal princes of Israel. And these twelve tribal princes inherited their position. So what is being described by the Zaken, Rosh, and Nasi were the three major categories of dignitaries of Israel. In verse 2, however, we're told that all the Ish of Israel were assembled before King Shlomo. Ish means men in a very general kind of way. There are some scholars who say that this is referring to the army or that it's merely throwing all the Zaken, Rosh, and, and, and Nasi into one big bucket and together calling them the Ish of Israel. I, I think it's self-evident that's not the case. All one needs is to know the Torah, the issue starts to disappear. See, the information that this was occurring in the seventh month and then later on in verses 65 and 66 in this chapter when we're told that there was a seven-day celebration immediately followed by another seven-day celebration that actually included an eighth day makes it clear that the second celebration that was really eight days is Sukkot. The Feast of Tabernacles is a Chag. It's a pilgrimage festival. It requires all adult males in Israel, regardless of social status, to journey to the temple. Therefore, all we have is that in the first verse we're told that all the dignitaries were present. In the second verse, all the male adults of Israel were also present. All classes of society came to the temple dedication and they stayed for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, one of the items brought to the temple, interestingly, was the tent of meeting. In Hebrew, Oel Moed. It also went by the name Mishkan. This is not the special tent that David made for the Ark of the Covenant and placed in the city of David. Rather, this is the remnant of the wilderness tabernacle that had been resting in Gibeon up until now. It, along with the location of Gibeon, was essentially being officially decommissioned as an authorized place of sacrifice and worship. Now, what it looked like at this point is anyone's guess, but there couldn't have been much left of the original, if, if anything at all, since at least 400 years had passed since it was first assembled out in the wilderness during the exodus from Egypt. Now it's interesting that verse 5 speaks of the priests bringing the ark to the temple grounds and that King Solomon and the whole community of Israel were in front of it making countless sacrifices. Then in verse 6 it says that the priests brought the ark inside 
the sanctuary. First, notice that it was the priests who transported the ark. That doesn't seem correct according to Torah law. It was the clan of Kohat, we find in number 7-9. Common Levites who were not priests, who were the only people authorized to carry the ark. The Hebrew sages say that the reason for this change was that it was only during the wilderness wanderings that the clan of Kohat was given this honor. And once a temple was built, this privilege ended. And while there's not a scriptural mention to that effect, I can easily see the sages' logic in this conclusion. After all, theoretically, once there's a permanent temple, there's no more need to transport the ark. The journey's over. Once ensconced in the Holy of Holies, it ought to never be moved again. But also notice that first all Israel assembled and sacrificed in front of the ark and then next it was moved to inside the temple. Therefore what happened is kind of easy to timeline. This really helps us. On the eighth day of Tishri, which was the seventh month, the ceremonies began with a procession that brought the Ark of the Covenant from its special tent in the city of David up to the Temple Mount. On the eighth and the ninth days of the month, the Ark sat in the courtyard and a huge amount of sacrifices were made. Now, this is an aside. It was fine for the Ark to be sitting there as a kind of witness to the proceedings as long as it was covered. Okay? Which no doubt it was. And the actual golden ark couldn't be seen by the people. But on the tenth day of the month, Yom Kippur, the ark was moved a few feet and placed inside the front room of the temple. And then it was carried further inside the temple into the Holy of Holies and then set down under the wings of the cherubim. What happens for the remainder of this chapter now occurs from the 10th through the 14th days of the month of Tishri. The 8th through the 14th, 8th, 9th, 10th, all the way through the 14th, Okay, this is the temple dedication festival that's spoken of in verse 65. Then on the 15th day of Tishri began the biblical feast of Sukkot, which lasted for eight more days through the 22nd of the month. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, the people began to filter back home after what would prove to probably be the most memorable two-week period of their lives. Now, verse 9 makes a statement that's caused needless controversy, although it's more controversial for Christians than Jews, because there it says explicitly that the only items inside that golden chest that was the ark were the stone tablets from Mount Sinai. 
Most Christian scholars dispute that statement as an error because they favor the New Testament book of Hebrews 9.4 where it says that the inside the ark along with the stone tablets was a pot of manna and Aaron's staff that budded. Thus it has been a standard Christian teaching that the tablets of the law, some manna, and the staff were always inside of the ark. However, Jews have never believed that because that's not what the Torah says. Rather, in Numbers 17.25, we're told that Aaron's staff was set before the ark, not in it. And in Exodus 16.33-34, we're told that a pot of manna was also set before the ark, not in it. And frankly, this is one of the many reasons that the book of Hebrews has been held suspect since some of the earlier church fathers argued over whether it ought to be included as part of the New Testament. Over the centuries, the book of Hebrews has been added, removed, added back in again to our Bibles, removed, added back in again, time after time after time. Now in verse 10, a most awesome thing happens. The cloud that marks the presence of the Lord suddenly appears and it fills the temple. The cloud was so luminous that its presence felt as though it was pressing down with irresistible pressure so it forced the priests to leave. There's nothing to indicate that Solomon or the priests were expecting this. On the other hand, it must have been so very welcomed, especially by the king. After all, King Solomon had expended years of effort and enormous sums of money on this house for the Lord. What if Jehovah didn't accept it? But with the appearance of the cloud, not only did Solomon all who were there have, have it validated that the Lord would indeed dwell there, but that was also the real consecration of this facility. To consecrate means to set apart for God. To set apart for God means to make holy. Only God makes holy. Only God declares what is holy. Man can't confer or declare holiness on anyone or anything. That's the sole province of the Lord. And so the appearance of the cloud conferred holiness onto that newly built structure. And verse 11 says that the cloud was the glory of Yehovah. In Hebrew the word is kavod. And we can get a little bit too rigid in assigning the word glory as the meaning of kavod. It more means abundant presence. Then verse 12 has Solomon saying that although the Lord said he would live in a thick cloud, 
Now that a house has been built for Yehovah, this would become his dwelling place. This sentence has some very interesting nuances hidden in it. All of them revolving around the word cloud. There are several Hebrew words that mean cloud, but they each mean something slightly different. The word used here is arpfel, arpfel. And many translations, as does the complete Jewish Bible, translate that word to thick darkness instead of thick cloud. And I think while that isn't necessarily wrong, it does give the modern reader the wrong impression. For one thing, the English word darkness, especially as used in the Bible, usually carries evil or fearful overtones to it. And on a number of occasions, we've looked at a typical Hebrew word for darkness, choshech. And we learn that indeed it is meant to convey to us something that involves evil. And thus, uh, thus it's a frightening spiritual, of frightening spiritual nature. But the word choshech is not used here. Rather, arpfel. A much better translation of arpfel is a dense cloud. Something that's so thick that it obscures completely whatever's in it or above it. It acts as a cover or or a, a barrier. So the cloud that appeared in the temple wasn't meant to inspire terror, but rather awesome reverence. We often hear of God appearing in a cloud. Like the one that led Israel through the wilderness. We we read it throughout the Holy Scriptures. When Christ ascended, it was no cheap phrase to say that He rose into the clouds until He became obscured by them. So the idea of calling whatever this presence of God is in the temple a cloud is to try and describe an indeterminate form. You know, we can look up and see a cloud. But we can't really touch it. We can't assign it a definite shape. For a moment, it might remind us of something familiar, but in another moment... That cloud is gone or its form is shifted to something else. In the end, using the term cloud to describe this particular presence of God is just a means to find a term to describe the indescribable. And this goes hand in hand with God refusing to allow manufactured images of Him. Because unlike all the false gods populating the world's societies that are fashioned either after animals or humans, Yehovah bears no form whatsoever that could be captured or properly defined in human terms or even as something familiar within our four-dimensional universe. Solomon ends his thought 
about the temple being God's dwelling place on earth by saying that it will be God's dwelling place forever. But we need to pause and understand something that's so critical to our understanding of God. The temple is but a conduit of sorts between man and God. It's merely a place and a means whereby God meets man for man's benefit. And communication takes place. Thus the idea that the temple is a place for God to dwell forever doesn't mean the temple as an earthly visible form made out of wood and stone. But rather this forever inhabitation is speaking of this, this ultimate divine substance that is God and it's indicative of His presence with His people. The, the earthly form, in this case Solomon's temple, will change. It'll decay. But the divine substance that inhabits and consecrates the building and makes it a temple never changes. So it's the substance of God that is forever. Not some earthly form of habitation and meeting. Now for a while, God's substance was present in this world in a whole number of forms. A cloud, the angel of the Lord, the Shekinah, the Ruach, even the glory as it's spoken of here, the Kavod of God. And then with the advent of Yeshua, God's substance was present on earth for a while in human form. And then after Christ, God's substance was made present in the world inside of humans. We call this the Holy Spirit. Later in the future, God's substance will again be with mankind in the form of Yeshua returning as King. The form keeps changing, but the substance never does, because the substance is God. It's rightly said in the modern church that these fleshly bodies of believers amount to God's temples in this era. The substance of God that dwells in us is never-ending and never-changing. But these imperfect fleshly temples do change and decay. All I have to do is look in the mirror every morning. (laughs) Further, just as God's presence in Solomon's temple is what consecrated and made it holy... So it is that God's presence in His worshipers consecrates us and makes us holy. You know, we can adorn ourselves with the, with the finest garments. We can wear the most beautiful and expensive religious icons. We're able to say all the right things and completely look the part. But unless God actually dwells in us, we possess no saving holiness. We're just empty shells. It matters not 
whether we are as tattered, beaten down, and or used up tent, <laughs> or as a magnificent shining new edifice. It's God's presence that makes holy. And God's presence has no interest. It has no respect for the outward grandness or plainness of that temple, whether made of fine building materials or of flesh. At this point, in verse 14, the king turns from facing the temple and says a blessing over the crowds of people. He pronounces that the promise made to David by the Lord has now been fulfilled. He also reminds the people that nowhere in the Torah did God inform His people in what city He would choose to put His name, meaning to permit a temple to be built for Him. However, David was chosen of God, and in a sense, David chose what city the temple would be built in. Yet David would not get to build that building. That honor would go to a son. Shlomo was that son. He's now king. The temple has been built. All of God's promises in this regard have been brought to reality. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Just a few more verses. We're going to read Kings, First Kings, uh, eight twenty-two to thirty. So reopen your Bibles. Twenty-two to thirty. Then Shlomo stood before the altar of Adonai in the presence of the whole community of Israel and he spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, Adonai, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You keep covenant with your servants and show them grace provided they live in your presence with all their heart. You've kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You spoke with your mouth. You fulfilled it with your hand. So it is today. Now, Therefore, Adonai, God of Israel, keep what you promised to your servant David, my father, when you said, you will never lack a man in my presence to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your children are careful about what they do, so that they live in my presence just as you have lived in my presence. Now, therefore, God of Israel, please let your word which you spoke to your servant David, my father, be confirmed. But can God actually live on earth? Why, heaven itself, even the heaven of heavens, can't contain you. So how much less this house I have built? Even so, Adonai, my God, pay attention to your servant's prayer and plea. Listen to the cry and prayer that your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes will be open towards this house night and day toward the place concerning which you said, My name will be there. To listen to the prayer your servant will pray towards this place. Yes, listen to the plea of your servant and that of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Here in heaven where you live and where you, when you hear, forgive. This begins a, a long and moving prayer that can be rivaled in the entire Bible only by the one spoken by Jesus that we call the Lord's Prayer. 
Now verse 22 begins by saying that Solomon stood before the altar and before the congregation of Israel. He ascended the steps of the altar of burnt offering and then he went to his knees. We don't see this act of kneeling here in chapter 8, but we do in the parallel account of this event in 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles 6, 12-13, it says, Then he stood before the altar of Adonai in the presence of the whole community of Israel, and he spread out his hands. For Shlomo had made a bronze platform eight and three-quarters feet long, eight and three-quarters feet wide, and five and a quarter feet high, and had it set up in the middle of the courtyard. He stood on it, then he got down on his knees before the whole community and spread out his hands towards heaven. Now, depending on your English translation... The opening words of Solomon's prayer that begins in chapter 8, verse 23, goes something like this. God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You keep covenant with your servants and show them grace, provided they live in your presence with all their heart. There's a great deal here. And one way to peel back the layers a little bit is to reinsert some of the original Hebrew words. Sounds something like this when you do. Yehoveh, Elohim of Yisrael. There is no Elohim like you in Shamayim or on Eretz. You keep Berit and Chesed with your servants, provided they live in your presence with all of their lab. Solomon invokes God's formal name, Yehovah. And he acknowledges that he is Israel's God and that there is no God comparable to Yehovah in the spiritual sphere of heaven, Shamim, or in the physical sphere of land, Eretz. And he says that Yehovah continues to honor the covenants, uh, the Berit, with all he, uh, that he's made with his people. And he continues to show them loving kindness, Chesed. But then Solomon's prayerful statement adds a caveat. The maintaining of these covenants and the kindness with his nation of Israel is conditional on them living in his presence with all of their consciousness. As I've mentioned on numerous occasions, the Hebrew word lev literally means heart. However, all throughout Old Testament and New Testament times, the heart was thought to be the seat of intellect and consciousness within humans. That is, that the heart possessed those functions that we know now is performed by our brains. So whereas modern Christianity has turned the word heart into something that always has to do with feelings and emotions. In fact, the sense of the word biblically was always referring to our conscious thoughts and our resulting actions and behavior. 
Thus God says he will only show his kindness to Israel and bestow the blessings contained within those covenants to the nation of Israel provided they obey him and walk in his ways. Cease doing so, the blessings are yanked and God's kindness turns to strong discipline. We have an almost exact parallel to this thought in the New Testament. Romans 11, 16 through 22. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. Now if the hala offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, a wild olive were grafted in among them that had become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you are not supporting the root, the root supporting you. So you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness towards you. Provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. One has to believe that St. Paul had Solomon's prayer in mind as he spoke these words to a group of Gentiles in Rome. God's kindness towards His redeemed is conditional, based on maintaining oneself in a manner that merits His kindness. And what is it that merits such kindness? Trust and full devotion to Him. And how is trust in Him demonstrated? By putting into action what you know through obedience to His commandments. It's that simple. It's not complicated, people. Some will, of course, say, well, now, wait a minute, I thought in our era showing trust in God was accomplished by showing trust in Messiah. That is certainly true on one level. But here St. Paul is already talking to believers. He's talking to believers who've already put their trust in Yeshua. He's addressing those who've already been grafted in. Not to seekers who may be considering if they'd like to be grafted in. He's talking to believers. So this entire section of Romans 11 only really applies to the redeemed in Christ. In the same way, 
that Solomon's prayer applied only to the redeemed of Israel. So this blessing of Solomon's is also a not-so-veiled threat, just as was Paul's. Solomon then asked the Lord to, to, to keep a prophetic promise that can only play out over centuries that Jehovah would maintain a descendant of David on the throne of Israel at all times. But that did not mean that a descendant of David who was doing wrong might not be removed, and many were. Solomon, you see, had many children. And so his children set up a number of family branches. All of them could legitimately state claim as a blood descendant of King David. So there would be a number of men legally eligible to take the throne over the coming centuries. God's promise was not limited to only one specific descendant. Verse 27 then opens up a conundrum that every thinking Christian wrestles with on a regular basis because Solomon says, God, on the one hand, you say you dwell in the temple up on Mount Moriah. But on the other hand, you say you live in heaven. In fact, in reality, to think about you dwelling in a heavenly temple in heaven misses the mark because you're so magnificent and limitless that even heaven can't be sufficient to hold you. So how exactly, O Lord, am I to understand your dwelling in this temple in Jerusalem when this cannot be the case in the way that a human could possibly conceptualize? See, there are some God principles alluded to here that that I want to touch on. The first is the idea of omnipresence. Solomon recognizes that God is not a man who because of being trapped in a physical body and in a physical sphere of space-time can only be in one place at one time. God is everywhere at once. God doesn't pack his bags and travel down from heaven in order to visit the temple on occasion, thus vacating his throne in heaven for a little while. You see, it's like with his believers. I mean, think about this. God is quite literally present within us, dwelling within us, and yet the us are millions of people spread all over this planet each having as much of God in us as any other. Even more, we know that He lives in heaven. And even the Lord's Prayer makes that clear. Our Father who art... Where? Yeah, in heaven. Christ was God on earth for a time. Does that mean God moved? If God relocated to earth then who was Christ praying to all that time? Did a part of God come down to earth and become Yeshua and therefore an incomplete God remained up in heaven? 
See, it's this kind of thought process that Solomon is expressing as he speaks to Jehovah. Lord, I know you're present. Goodness, your cloud just chased all my priests right out of the temple. I just don't understand how you're present. I don't understand what all that means. But all that you said, all that you have told me, Lord, unequivocally is, you will dwell in this temple. So, despite my ability to comprehend how this can be, why you would even agree to live in that kind of lowly structure, well, I accept that it's all true. Therefore, Solomon says that based on faith and trust and not of his own understanding, he's going to direct his prayers and the prayers of his people, Israel, towards the temple. That conduit of communication and meeting between man and God. And despite his ignorance, in verse 28, all that Solomon asks is that God would choose to hear the prayers of his servant. And the word used for asking God to hear is Shema. And it means not to just passively listen and commiserate. It means to act. I'm going to close with this thought. We don't have to understand how or even why God has chosen to dwell in these corrupt temples that we call our bodies. We don't have to question or understand how He can be present with all believers everywhere simultaneously and be in heaven or any place else He chooses as well. Rather, we merely use these fleshly temples as the place from which we direct our prayers. We use them as the place of meeting between us and God. Not because we choose it to be like this. Or are we able in our own will to make it so. But rather, because the Lord did. Now all we have to do is believe Him. All we have to do is act upon that belief. Okay, we'll continue with chapter 8 next week.